0: Hello, and welcome to the April 22nd, 2022 episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. We're now just two short weeks away from the Ironman World Championship that has been too long postponed or canceled because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The first of two such races to take place this year, this first go-around will be the first to occur since Jan Frodeno won the event back in 2019. But this race will, of course, be very different from that day, almost two and a half years ago. Aside from the fact that we are seeing this event happen in May for the first time since 1982, when the event was last held twice in a single year so that it could be moved to October, we will also be watching the best in triathlon compete on a very different course in a very different landscape. Having recently spent a week in St. George, Utah, riding on most of the bike course, I can tell you with certainty that this is not going to be a course for the weak or ill-prepared. With more than 7,000 feet of elevation gain over its 112-mile length, the bike course is quite simply one of the hardest, if not the hardest, around. And add to that another 4,000 feet of climbing on the run – And I think that it's fair to say that we're in for one heck of a day of racing in the professional ranks and a heck of a beatdown for the age groupers. But there is one other way in which this event will be different from 2019. And it is in this way that I want to talk about ever so briefly before getting into this episode of the podcast. And that is the unfortunate absence of three of the biggest stars in the sport. Patrick Long announced a while ago that he will not be there after sustaining a broken bone in a bike crash during training. Then, a couple of weeks ago, we learned that reigning 70.3 world champion Lucy Charles Barkley will be absent because of a stress fracture in her hip. And most recently, Verdeno himself, the reigning men's champion, also announced that he too would not be there because of a partial tear in his Achilles tendon. These absences are really unfortunate, but among professional triathletes, we as fans know that injury is to be expected, and every year we are always hearing about how someone has been affected by some kind of traumatic or overuse injury that forces them out for a period of time. In cases such as Lang's, there is really nothing to be done for it. The circumstances that led to his crash are simply part of training, and we can be thankful that, like Sky Munch and others before them, he will heal and return to race soon. For Ferdano, his injury is clearly a matter of the wear and tear on an, as much as we don't want to admit it, slowly aging body. The certainty that he will be back and able to race at the same level by October is less than it is for Lang, but it's by no means impossible. For Lucy Charles Barkley, though, I'm really most disappointed, not just because I'm a fan and will sorely miss her in the race, but because I firmly believe that her injury was pretty much entirely avoidable. And more than that, I believe that she is not being well-informed as to what led her to this place so that she can ensure that it does not happen again. If you've listened to this podcast for long enough, then you have heard me discuss the female athlete triad and the relative energy deficiency syndrome on numerous occasions, The female athlete triad specifically is a significant burden for women in high-impact sports and other activities, such as dance, where body weight is often a major concern. When women in these pursuits are encouraged or self-motivated to lose too much weight to the point that their menstrual cycles become disrupted, there are important hormonal effects that result in the loss of calcium from bones, weakening those structures, and eventually, stress fractures often occur. I am, of course, not privy to Lucy Charles Barkley's menstrual history, but I am more than able to see that over the past couple of years, this woman has shown some significant changes in her body habitus and composition to the point that, as a health professional, I feel pretty confident in hypothesizing that this is exactly what played out for her. Stress fractures in the hip are not a normal occurrence, and in the absence of the female athlete triad, it would be pretty hard to imagine how it could have come about. Unfortunately, Lucy herself recently posted a YouTube video seen by far more people than are going to hear this podcast in which she blamed pretty much everything and anything other than her own nutrition and the people responsible for protecting her health for what happened. She talks about how she took too long of a break from her regular training and ate poorly, suggesting that she actually had too many calories as opposed to too few. She says that she strayed from her usual intake of dietary supplements, none of which, I should point out, have any role in preventing stress fractures and all of which are unnecessary if she would just eat like a more normal human being. Worst of all, the whole affair was sponsored by her main supporter, Red Bull, who got called out numerous times and who I would imagine is not terribly invested in the best nutritional practices for women in high-impact endurance sport. Now, I have nothing against Red Bull. I will drink some of that stuff on course at times myself, but I'm not going to use them to help me sort out my nutrition strategy in my day-to-day life. All of this is to say I'm really sad and disheartened that we won't be seeing these professionals in St. George, and that given this opportunity to inform and educate a large and likely predominantly young and female audience, Lucy Charles Barkley has squandered the opportunity, and instead come up with some very bizarre explanations for why she is missing this event, instead of landing on the most plausible answer, because likely she doesn't want to admit it. I sincerely hope that someone in her circle will be able to break through that nonsense and talk some sense into her, because I would dearly like to see her back in this sport for a long time to come. If not, I'm afraid you can be sure that this is just the beginning of a drawn-out string of injuries that will be blamed on all manner of things aside from the simple truth, and that is, she just needs to eat more. On the show today... COVID might be receding into the rearview mirror for many of us in terms of a major concern for illness and death, but the disease itself has not disappeared, as the newly surging BA2 variant of Omicron is demonstrating around the world. Worse, while acute infection seems to finally portend no more than a nasty cold for most people, we are now learning that once the infection clears, symptoms can persist for a long time afterward. And this long COVID, as it has come to be known, can be debilitating and very, very long lasting. A recent study by some researchers at Penn evaluated the evidence on what is known about long COVID and its impact on athletes, specifically. And folks, it's not pretty. I'm going to look at their findings and what this means for triathletes, and that's coming up very shortly. Later, I'm joined by the author of the Triathletes Training Bible, Joe Friel. Joe's is a name that is well known to triathletes, and not just because of his book, but also because of the platform that he and his son, Dirk, bestowed to all of us, that being Training Peaks. Joe has been working with cyclists, runners, and triathletes for decades, and his knowledge on training and racing is equaled by few. We talk about his time in the sport, his book, and the development of Training Peaks, among other things, and that's coming up in a little while. Now, if you enjoy my interview with Joe Friel, you should know that he recorded a bonus segment that was made available to all of my Patreon supporters recently on their very own private feed. For anywhere from 3 to $10 a month, Patreon supporters of this podcast can keep the podcast on the air and informing and educating you all on the science of health and fitness in triathlon. In exchange, supporters can hear bonus interviews, not just with Joe Friel, but also with the likes of Sky Munch, Laura Siddle, Dave Scott, Mark Allen, and many others. And now, while supplies last, subscribers at the $10 a month level also get a Boco TriDoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today and become a supporter so that you too can get access and this awesome thank you gift. The URL for more information and where you can sign up is patreon.com forward slash tridocpodcast. And thanks so much in advance just for considering. As we sit in the midst of what once again feels like the decline of the COVID-19 pandemic, I find myself feeling, once again, somewhat guardedly optimistic. The Omicron variant swept through much of the population and displaced the more dangerous variants from the scene, leaving behind a degree of herd immunity enhanced by vaccination. And while we are seeing increased case rates in Europe from an even more infectious version of Omicron that is also affecting areas of the United States and other places where triathlon is getting going, fortunately to date, this hasn't been associated with increased rates of hospitalization or death. Still, this does mean that another wave of infection could break out anywhere that there are still large numbers of people who have yet to be infected and remain unvaccinated. So we don't know if there's going to be a significant burden of mortality that comes. But we do know that even if COVID doesn't come around with a large number of hospitalizations and death, that it still brings a fair amount of morbidity. Since this virus first appeared, the learning curve for me and my colleagues in the medical community has really been steep. And today, two and a half years on, there's still far more that we don't know about this wily adversary than we do. As an athlete coach, and medical provider, there's really two specific questions related to COVID that remain of the utmost interest. The first being how and when is it safe to return to training after COVID infection, and I've talked about that a fair amount. And the second, what are the long-term consequences of COVID infection? The answers to them are very much interrelated, and despite all that we've learned about this disease, we still don't really have a full understanding to be able to answer them completely satisfactorily, and this is especially true for the second of the questions. Well, a recent paper from the University of Massachusetts in the Journal of Applied Physiology provided an excellent overview of the current state of understanding on the latter of these two questions, specifically, what is the impact of COVID long-term? And unfortunately, that understanding is that while there's been a lot of published research to date, it's really left more questions than answers. Now, as you're no doubt aware, long-term symptoms that persist after the acute infection has been cleared is more frequently referred to as simply, quote, long COVID, end quote. And in studies of patients who were hospitalized with the disease, as many as two-thirds of them will describe symptoms persisting for months after infection, and the most common of those symptoms tends to be fatigue and shortness of breath. But as these researchers have found, long COVID is evolving to mean not just a persistence of symptoms, but likely changes to organs and body body systems that can result in potential consequences, especially for active people and athletes like ourselves, as much as decades into the future. With respect to our current understanding of what we typically refer to as long COVID, up to half of patients who experience symptoms will have them for a full year after hospitalization, though most do report improvement after about six months, which does suggest that even with long COVID, recovery does occur over time. And even for those with mild disease, those who weren't hospitalized, those who maybe even had asymptomatic illness, more than a third of patients will report some degree of persistent symptoms for several weeks after illness. Muscle weakness is another commonly experienced symptom that patients who have been hospitalized will report for several weeks to months after having a case of COVID. Up to 80% of patients will have demonstrable weakness on structured strength testing 20 days post-hospital discharge, and as many as a quarter of older patients will still be demonstrably weak up to three months later. Now, previous studies have focused on the unusually high prevalence of neurologic symptoms, such as insomnia and anxiety. And given the importance of sleep on exercise performance, this aspect of long COVID can be quite consequential for athletes. Dr. Kareen Serviante is a postdoctoral fellow and is one of the authors of the papers from U, of the paper from UMass. And when I spoke to her, she explained to me how it's kind of hard to tease apart the insomnia and the physical fatigue and the muscle weakness that I just described, that these patients may be experiencing all as a consequence of their acute COVID infection and that these are now the manifestations of their long COVID. And so it's kind of hard to know what really is the issue for them. Uh, but the end result is that their exercise performance is hurt. So why their exercise performance is hurt isn't really all that important as to the fact that it's hurt in general. Now, aside from the muscle weakness, the shortness of breath, and the neurologic symptoms of long COVID, the effects that the virus has on the heart are the ones that cause the most concern for athletes. And of course, I have spoken about this several times on this program. Studies on young, mildly symptomatic, or asymptomatic athletes have shown that as many as half will show signs of myocardial damage during the convalescent period after COVID infection if you look for them on advanced imaging. And this is what has led to the very conservative return to training guidelines that have been published by several cardiology societies and the more progressive but still cautious guidelines published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine that I so recently discussed with Dr. Spencer Tomberg on this very program. A co-author of the review article that I mentioned earlier, Guanel Leek, is an associate professor of kinesiology also at the University of Massachusetts, and when I spoke with him, he told me that one of the major concerns about COVID's effects on the heart isn't so much the acute myocarditis, but rather the lack of the ability of cardiac muscle to recover from injury. He worries that the formation of scar tissue within the heart muscle may very well be permanent, And while in the short term for a young athlete, it might not be that important, as the person ages, once they get down the road a couple of decades, is that damage going to make them more susceptible to cardiac events? And he says, we just don't know right now. The paper also cited a growing body of evidence that suggests COVID also has important and long-lasting effects on the blood vessels, making them stiffer and less responsive to endogenous substances that would normally make them relax. When combined with possible cardiac dysfunction, stiffer blood vessels can make things potentially much worse, especially in an athlete who's training hard. If a young athlete is demonstrating signs of cardiac strain and vascular effects right now, how might that play out over the years as they age? Are they going to become more susceptible to serious cardiovascular ailments or potentially be at risk for sudden cardiac death when training or racing hard? We just don't know. While long-term cardiac issues are very concerning, but as yet remain completely undefined, one thing that is well understood is the impact on overall exercise performance of COVID infection. In patients who have been hospitalized with COVID, peak cycling power was half that of controls at the time of discharge, and only rose to 90% of age-predicted normal levels three months later. Values for VO2 max were similarly affected. And one of the authors from the paper concedes that in this area, there's no available data for people who had only mild disease and didn't require hospitalization. But they told me that this is not a mild disease the way we're thinking about it. COVID is not a cold. Even in those who are not hospitalized, it takes quite a while to recover and get back to their pre-COVID abilities, simply because while a cold just affects our upper respiratory tract, COVID is having effects throughout the body and in ways we don't yet understand. The lower exercise tolerance after COVID infection is thought to be related to altered handling of oxygen at the cellular level, and the time for recovery and degree for reversion to normal is still not known, demonstrating again how COVID has impacts far beyond the respiratory system uh, respiratory system in the nose and in the lungs. So all of this reinforces the need once again to prevent COVID infection in the first place. Now, it's true, the waning numbers of infection obviously help with this, but there remains a large number of people who still have not yet been infected, which is mind-boggling, right? When you think about the hundreds of millions of people who have been infected with COVID to date, there are still billions more who remain essentially firewood for a fire if one breaks out. Now, there's no doubt that the best... (laughs) defense against COVID still remains vaccination. Even though the vaccines are unperfect, vaccines have now been shown not just to prevent serious illness and death, but also they reduce the likelihood of long COVID in those who do get breakthrough infections. And clearly this is important. Two separate studies have shown this very nicely, one from the United Kingdom and one from Israel, both of which supported the notion that vaccination decreases the incidence of long COVID by more than half in those who still become infected. And there is even a suggestion that because the cause of long COVID might be continued replication of the virus at low levels in certain cells, that vaccination in patients who were previously unvaccinated, became infected, and then developed long COVID might actually reduce the long COVID symptoms. In other words, if a patient was unvaccinated, got COVID, then developed long COVID, you could potentially give them a vaccine and reduce their long COVID symptoms. This is clearly an area for future research, and this remains to be determined if that's actually going to be an effective kind of treatment, but it's out there. Now, however this pandemic proceeds from this point forward, there's no question athletes need to remain vigilant and very respectful of a virus that retains the ability to do so much more than just cause a transient upper respiratory tract infection. While we can hope that the current trend will continue and the days of large waves of infection are truly behind us, even in that scenario, COVID's not going anywhere. It's here to stay in some form or another. And should you become infected, being aware of the potential for long-term symptoms can prepare you for that eventuality. Be ready to modify your approach to training and to know what to expect for recovery. What remains to be seen and what we're only going to learn over many, many years to come, is whether or not the term long COVID becomes something much more ominous, something that relates to possible adverse events decades down the road, long after infection, and could potentially have repercussions for a very long time to come. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, I hope that you'll email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. Alternatively, please consider joining the TriDoc Podcast Facebook group. You can apply to be accepted into this private group just by searching for the group on Facebook, answer these simple questions, and I will admit you so that you can submit topics for conversation amongst the, uh, amongst the other members of the group, and I will see them all and certainly consider them for inclusion on the podcast. If
1: you are a regular listener of this podcast, then you know that the TriDoc is well-versed in the science of endurance sport. If you are looking for a coach who will bring that kind of insight to coaching, someone who brings more than 20 years of experience in racing and the knowledge that comes with years of coaching and both USAT and Ironman U coaching certifications, then maybe the TriDoc is someone you should consider for your coach to help you take your training in racing to the next level. As a member of the staff at LifeSport Coaching, Jeff Sankoff can get you access to team workouts and camps as well as discounts on clothing, nutrition products, and even bikes. So if you are thinking about a triathlon coach to help you achieve your performance goals, visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com to see how the TriDoc can help you get to where you want to be in triathlon. Those websites again, trydoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com.
0: My guest on the podcast today is Joe Friel. Joe is a lifelong athlete and has a master's degree in exercise science. He's trained and conferred with amateur and professional endurance athletes from a wide variety of sports since 1980. And based on this experience, he co founded Training Peaks in 1999 with his son, Dirk Friel, and friend, Gere Fischer. Today, he mostly focuses on training emerging top-level coaches on best practices and preparing endurance athletes for competition. This regularly takes him to coaching seminars around the world. He also consults with corporations in the sports and fitness industry and with national uh, Olympic governing bodies worldwide. His training Bible books for road cyclists, mountain bikers, and of course triathletes are used by several national sports federations to train their coaches. And his philosophy and methodology for training athletes was developed over more than 40 years and is based on his strong interest in sports science research and his experience training hundreds of athletes with a wide range of abilities. His views on matters related to training for endurance sport are widely sought and have been featured in numerous publications, and today will be featured here. Joe lives and trains in the mountains of Sedona, Arizona, from which he's joining me remotely, and so I thank you so much for being here on the TriDoc Podcast today, Joe. Welcome.
1: Thanks very much, Jeff. Glad to be here. Looking forward to
0: it. Now, I want to start first with just a discussion about Training Peaks, because it's such a huge deal for so many athletes, specifically uh, triathletes. Uh, Where did that idea come from, and how did you develop and implement it?
1: (laughs) Well, it came from my son, actually. Um, When I started coaching (laughs) back, a long time ago, back in the 80s, uh, all my clients were lived in the same town I lived in, so I just met them face to face, and that's how we communicated how we, I gave them workouts, you know, writing down a piece of paper, hint, and hint, them. then I started getting clients outside of where I, of my local area, and I started mailing to them. Then I started getting clients outside of the country, and I started faxing to them. Now I'm into the 90s, and uh, about Oh, I think about 1996 or 7, something like that. My son joined me as an assistant coach. He was a road cyclist, pro-road cyclist in uh, in Europe in the late 80s, early 90s, and uh, was quite, you know, quite a good athlete, very knowledgeable also on training. So he joined me as assistant coach. And he realized faxing and newsletter letters and postal mail just wasn't going to hack it. So in 1999, searching for a better way, he talked to a buddy of his who happened to be an authority on on how to trade websites. And uh, this guy just basically put on the web the stuff I was faxing to people, which was a calendar with stuff you could write in about what the workouts were going to be, and the athlete could then write in what they did. It would all take place on websites instead of in a fax machine, which is Of laborious to work with. And that was 1999, and the guy that put it together fell in love with it. He was spending more time working on that than I think he was his full time job. He was doing this out of his bedroom uh, at home. And finally, in 2000, early 2000, we decided this thing is really pretty good, he's come up with it. He kept tweaking it all the time. So we decided to take it. Live and make it open to uh, anybody that wanted to use it coaches or athletes or anybody else instead so just, of just my coaches. Yeah, that's how it all got started. And it's now we've got I think Turning Beach now has something like 80 uh, full time employees working there. Uh, we've got athletes and coaches around the world, and I've forgotten the numbers in the tens of thousands that use it. It's become rather Overwhelming compared to the way how it started out, just as a, a tool for my coaches to use in our coaching business. So it's, it's been doing great.
0: Yeah, it's quite a success story, and I, I like you said, I, I can't even imagine doing anything without. I mean, it, it really. It, you kind of wonder: Did Training Peaks make online coaching, or did online coaching lead to Training Peaks? Because uh, I can't imagine one without the other. They really go together, and it's it's facilitated this ability for athletes and coaches to connect where previously it, it could only be done in person or uh, in a way that was really cumbersome, like you said, with faxes. I mean, most, most of my younger listeners won't even know what a fax machine is just to to let you know how quickly things have uh, have proceeded. Um, now because training peaks is used so ubiquitously, uh, there are still things in there that I think a lot of athletes, I know when I talk to my athletes, they don't necessarily know all of the little bells and whistles that come with it. So let's just briefly talk about three of the numbers that training peaks calculates and, and, and de- and shows to athletes, because I think it's useful to hear it from the person who probably helped develop these numbers. It didn't come up with them yourself. Uh, let's start with TSS, the training stress score. So right. just a, a nuts and bolts, just real gen- basic version. What is TSS for an athlete who comes across it the first time? Well, the letter
1: stands for training stress score. And basically it's a way of, of, uh, Combining the duration of the workout and the intensity of the workout into one number. In the past, we've always had to talk about those two things separately. I did a, I did a, you know, a three-hour bike ride, and it was moderately hard. That was how we kind of described it. Now we can have a number that kind of tells us exactly what this, the duration combined with intensity, what the stress was, what your body experienced. Yeah,
0: and then the other the other numbers uh, that are that are related to that are the CTL and the ATL, so the acute training right. load and the chronic uh, training load.
1: Yeah, um, chronic training load is is a proxy for your fitness. Basically, what we have to assume is that as you train more, you get you become more fit. That that's the common. Uh, theory behind CTL. So the more you train, in other words, the more CTSS you have, the more fit you become. And so CTL is a reflection of, of 42 days rolling average of your CTL. So for example, pro triathlete is probably doing somewhere around an average 150 TSS per day, which is a pretty big number. Some are doing more than that, some are doing less Uh, But that's a fairly common number, It's 150 TSS per day, whereas a novice may be doing a CTL number, which is more around 30 to 40, maybe 50 at the most for a novice triathlete. So that number simply reflects how fit the athlete is. The higher that CTL number is, in other words, the higher your rolling average of your TSS is, the more efficient. That that's the theory behind the concept. ATL is 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 the is the same concept only it's a reflection of what your fatigue level is, how tired you are, and it rolls on a seven day average instead of forty two day average. It, it default on the seven day average, And well, you can change those if you decide those aren't the right numbers for you. You want know, something higher or lower than forty two or higher or lower than seven. You can change them. Within the uh, um, the app, and so you can you can, um, make it more customizable. But basically, that's a seven-day rolling average of your CTL, and we you know that as that ramps up very quickly, you're becoming very tired. Because it, so we try to do is what the athlete tries to do, or the coach is to hold down the rate at which your ATL is rising. If it rises too quickly. You're basically going to wind up uh, overtrained if you keep doing it that way. It's going to lead to to uh, an overtraining syndrome if you do it long
0: enough. So it just
1: gives you some right. reflection on how you're doing as far as fatigue is concerned.
0: Right, and I I personally love those numbers. I find the the performance management chart or PMC is one of the most useful charts that is available in the app as a coach and as a as an athlete. I refer to it frequently. Uh, and I, I, I'm very fond of, uh, the training peaks app on the phone because, uh, if you go to your home screen right there in front of you is your CTL, ATL and uh, sorry, your, um, yeah, your CTL, your ATL. And uh, what is the other number? That's, those are the two numbers that I pay attention to. I'm going to call it up right now to look at what the other number is because it's, uh, oh, your form. Yeah, it's your form. That's right. Your trust, your, your, which basically shows what level of, preparedness you are. It's the opposite of your ATL. Um, and uh, I, I find them incredibly useful as the season goes on to watch uh, your performance chart. It's very rewarding to see that. And so having a good understanding of that for an athlete, I think, is, is incredibly helpful. So just to summarize again, TSS is a way of combining the uh, intensity and duration of an of a, an effort, of a workout. The CTL shows your rolling average of uh, fitness as you uh, have day-to-day uh, workouts of TSS. And then the ATL shows the ramp or the the amount of acute training load that comes from how hard your workouts have been in the last seven days. Um, now, are there other features that you think athletes don't use enough in training peaks that, that you think are sort of like little hidden gems that, that athletes should know about?
1: Yeah. The one, by the way, I should mention Andy Cogging is the, the brains behind everything we've just talked about This. There's by no means stuff I came up with. That was all stuff he came up with.
0: And,
1: uh, if you ever want to all read right. about this stuff in more detail, if you really are you really know, you want to read a big, thick book about how to do all this stuff, he's got a book called like, "Turning the Power. Or, no, that's not right. And, uh, yeah, turning the Power. And uh, that takes you through all the details of yep. how to do all this stuff. But there, there is one that I came up with, which I think is very valuable, one of the things I noticed when I was coaching athletes, this goes way back to the early 2000s, 20 years ago, I noticed when I was coaching athletes, I was always looking at their heart rate versus their power on the same chart. So what was happening to these two things? And it began to dawn on me sometime in the mid-early to early 2000s that uh, there was a relationship between these two. And I uh, when one would rise, the other would rise, which makes sense. If you're, if you're increasing your power output, you're, you're working harder, and therefore your heart rate rises. However, what I discovered also, in looking at more in more detail, was that it didn't, for all athletes, it didn't rise at the same rate. So for some athletes, it rose at a very both things rose at a very fast rate. For other athletes, as their power went up, the heart rate went up much more slowly. So that began to intrigue me, and I played with numbers there and realized that if I took the the, a, the average power output for a workout, let's say, for an athlete, and took the average heart rate for that very same workout divided power by heart rate, I came up with a, with a number which showed me um, basically how aerobically fit they were. Because when we talked about um, combining uh, output, which is what power is, power is your output. Heart rate is your input. How much effort you're putting into is reflected in your heart rate. So if we have output and input, and we divide output by input, we get something called efficiency. So if you happen to have a business where you're trying to make widgets, you'd be very interested in knowing how much output you get, how many widgets do you produce, and what's your cost of production. That's the same idea. And you'd find that out by dividing output by the input, and that would tell you your efficiency, how efficiently your company is operating. Well, it's the same thing with the human body. You take the power output, divide that by your heart rate for the very same workout, you get something which I began to call the efficiency factor, and that's a reflection on how you're doing as far as your aerobic fitness. Now, this only works for uh, workouts that are done aerobically. In other words, you do extremely high intensity workouts what we typically call anaerobic workouts, it's not going to work there. It only works for aerobic workouts, but it reflects what's going on as far as your aerobic fitness, and right now, one of the major um, tr- training uh, concepts right now in endurance sports is something called the 80-20 or polarization aspect of the way of training.
0: Which yeah.
1: Is 80% of your time is spent working on your aerobic yeah. fitness, Twenty percent of workout workout is high intensity. Well, this is EF, its efficiency factor, is a good reflection of how your eighty percent is going. That number should be rising over time for similar workouts. So that that's that's one more I would throw in. That doesn't get much attention, but I think it's a great tool.
0: Okay, so I'll give you. Let's let's look. Let's use a real life example. I I did a, a one and a half hour bike workout today. and uh i'm looking at the graph right now and it was one of these workouts where it was it was aerobic the whole way uh there's a basically a gradual rise in uh, the amount of power being put it put out from starting at 150 watts and then topping out at 205 watts so really very zone two for me and then uh uh, it's sort of zone three by the end, but, uh, or no upper limit of zone two. Sorry. No, zone two, very much zone two. Anyways. So my EF for that was 1.65. Right. So how, how does, how does one interpret that EF?
1: By itself, it means nothing. You have to compare it to a similar workout.
0: especially okay. time.
1: So if you went back, let's say you went back okay, three months and found a very similar workout Look to see what the EF was for that workout. In other words, you, you had a very similar power output, for example. Uh, with that number, what we'd like to see is for that same type of workout, that 1.65, the workout you did yesterday or today, what you said just now, compared that with three months ago, and now 1.65 is higher. Let's say it was 1.5 three months ago, and now for the same workout as 1.65, that means you got more power output. You got more output from the same input. You became more efficient. Your aerobic thickness improved. That's that's how you use that tool. Got it. You've got to be similar workouts. They aren't got similar it. You want
0: the EF to get
1: higher over time. Yeah.
0: Got it. So you want the EF, you want the EF to get higher over time for similar workouts. Exactly. It suggests, uh, more fitness. That's great. Okay. Well, there, there you go. Now I, I have learned something very valuable, uh, already in this conversation. It's a good um, answer. excellent. Um, I, I want to talk, uh, about, uh, you know, your, the book that everybody knows you for training Bible. I'm holding oh, on yeah. my copy here. And, uh, there are four editions, uh, that have come out so far and I'm curious what have been some of the bigger changes that you have made that reflect philosophical changes in coaching and training from edition one to edition four?
1: Okay. Uh, happened to hit on one of my uh, tender spots, which is philosophy of training. And uh, my, my way of training athletes has evolved over the years and began to evolve and uh, began to change. i wrote the very first book back in 1998, I think it was, First Train Bible. And the last one was written about 2017, if I recall, right? So we've got roughly um, almost 20 years there of, of development of that of, of that book, which reflects basically my philosophy and methodology of training. One of the things that's really changed a lot is I, I became uh, a lot smarter when it came to uh, the metrics, things that like we've just been talking about. How these things can be used to improve your trimming. Back when I wrote the first book, power meters had, had been around for only 10 years. They were invented in 1987. And so when I wrote the book, I, I don't recall exactly how much was in there in the first edition, but there was probably like one page on how to use a power meter. Because the things had just come out, and there really wasn't much information available. I just got mine just a couple of years before that. And I didn't know anybody else in the entire world who had one besides me and Greg Naman. That was about it. Um, so I didn't, I didn't write much about it, but just a very brief little piece. And then, as things began to develop by the early 2000s and the stuff we just talked about began, began to develop, I, I became much more knowledgeable on how to use data to improve one's training. And so, my <laughs> My philosophy of training began to evolve because of that. My philosophy of training is something very, very simple. It's that which is measured, improves. So if I need to figure out, if I want you to be if I'm going to coach you, Jeff, uh, you tell me your goal is to podium at national championship. What I'm going to try to do is figure out how come you can't do that right now. Why do you need me to do this for you? Why can't you simply go out and do the race and podium? Well, that leads me to trying to figure out what your weaknesses are. And so now that if I figure out what your weaknesses are, especially your event-specific weaknesses. So if it's, let's say, if it's Olympic distance racing, what are your Olympic distance weaknesses? Now, I call those limiters, the things that are holding you back from being successful. And this starts getting into a whole realm here of all these concepts and this idea of measuring things. But the idea is, if I can, if I can figure out what is holding you back, and measure those things on a, on a on a regular basis, like weekly, almost daily, in fact, then I can begin to make improvements in those things, and you're going to achieve your goal. Because these are what's holding you back. So that became the way. By the time I got to the last edition, the fourth edition you mentioned, that had become the way I was coaching athletes. So look for what their limiters are, measure those limiters, monitor them on a, on a regular basis as in weekly, daily, talk about them with the athlete all the time. How are we doing relative to these? Whatever these things may be, efficiency factor, for example, or your CTL. Whatever it may be, what we're trying to figure out, whatever are these... Weaknesses are. We keep monitoring and talking about them, and invariably they improve. And as they improve, the athlete gets closer and closer to achieving the goal. So that's the philosophy of my coaching and developed As I was writing the book, primarily because things like power meters, and heart rate monitors are becoming much better for for, for use in coaching athletes.
0: Yeah, I really like that. And it actually leads me to my next question, which is, you know, triathlon has always been such a tech-heavy sport, at least as long as I've been in it. And you've mentioned power meters and heart rate monitors. And I'm just curious, as the technology, you know, we see more and more technology all the time. How much, besides power meters, which have had really an outsized impact, I think, on cycling, how much has technology really impacted training and racing performance uh just by itself
1: significantly um there's been a lot of things that have gone on um, because of the data that's not available but we're, we're at a point right now which we're becoming able to run the data uh you've got wearables you've got a garment you've got a loop you've got a hrv you've got all the stuff that's being being used to give you data on how you are coming along as not only an athlete, but even as a as a person, how much sleep are you getting, for example? How many calories are you burning per day? The whole we're just we're overwhelmed now with data. Twenty years ago, it wasn't that way. We had there we were just a few things we could look at. Now it's like endless. If you do it, if you went out and did a, a two hour bike ride, and I got your data, I could spend two hours just analyzing all the data that went into your two hour ride. It's not. It's, obviously not feasible. You can't be totally overwhelmed with all this data because it's just not going to be able to do anything for us. So the issue becomes, what is it that I need to know about? What is important? That which takes me back to the philosophy thing of water fuel, which is what are your weaknesses your limiters? Determine those and go watch those things. Don't watch everything, just watch the limiters. Work on improving those. So I try to get out. One of the things I try to find out if I'm going to work work with an athlete, one of the things I want to find out is how obsessed are they with data? There's a limit. It's okay to be interested in data. That's fine. I have no problem with that at all. The people who are obsessed with data, um, that's a problem. So even though people probably think of me as being obsessed with data, I'm really not. Um, I still believe the most important thing is the athlete and how they felt. What is their perception of the workout or the race? That's the most important thing. Everything else is secondary. If your battery dies during the workout, it should not mean anything at all to your performance. You should still be able to perform just as nicely and just as well. So, So I try to find out, you know, how the athlete is doing in terms of how they perceive data if you're spending too much time looking at data, I'm going to then start having some changes made in their training. One of the things I'll do is I'll put a piece of tape over a handlebar computer and over the wristwatch when they do a workout. And, uh, and have them do the workout without knowing any data whatsoever. And then when they get back, yeah. it's, supposed to, it's supposed to be intervals. When they get back, now we can com- we take the we upload the data and we compare to how they felt with what they actually did. That then becomes a great way of seeing how the athlete is perceiving uh, their effort, their intensity. Um, and so I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to get the athlete to, to move away from being obsessed with data and get to what's important and look at only those things. First of all, we got to get to the point where they realize that they can do this without the data if they have to. If the power dies, they can still race. That would be the work um, so so that, that's kind of where I evolved to in this whole idea of how to use dev.
0: Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, when it comes to data, you know, you have to be able to process that data. You have to be able to analyze it and read it. As a coach I have started to try and understand how to use WKO and I'm curious, you know WKO seems to be somehow involved with training. I know it's separate from training peaks but it's not but it does integrate with training peaks. What's your thoughts on WKO? I mean, you know, I I am a coach who's fairly early in my coaching career. Is this something that I really should cuz I feel like looking at it I feel almost like I need to take a course to learn how to use it properly. Is this something that you think is super beneficial to me as a coach and will benefit my athletes and and therefore are you one of those people who say you know wko is so good with data and it's so beneficial to you as a coach and to your athletes that yes i think it's worth it or is wko really for someone who is really wants to understand the granularity of data and get into the weeds yeah well, first of
1: all let's take care of the confusion about how it's related to training gigs. Uh, We own WKO, training details. We own WKO and we sell it as a separate app. Okay. They overlap quite a bit. There's, you know, like the performance management charts you were talking about, CTL, ATL, all that kind of stuff. It's in both uh, apps. But um, if you use WKO, it digs deeper into the weeds. I mean, it goes really, really deep. I never recommend it for athletes unless the athlete is extremely data-driven. Um, I, I really only recommend it for coaches because I think it can be beneficial for coaches. For example, if nothing else, one of the things it does is it's always analyzing the, the athlete's power data to decide what their FTP is, the functional threshold power, which is kind of like the thing that determines all these numbers like ATL, CTL, all this kind of stuff is based on on your, on your FTP. And so it is always monitoring data and telling you, the coach or the athlete, what the FTP is today for that athlete. So it's always doing that for you. Mm-hmm. You don't have yeah. to worry about, do I know what this athlete's FTP is? Because the data is always being analyzed by WKO and telling you what it is right now, today. So changes it a on a daily basis if you watch it WKO, you will see, it's changing as, as time goes on. So that's, that's that's probably the most basic way you can use it. Now, would I recommend somebody uh, buy a subscription to WKO? Just another FTP, probably not. There's, but there's a lot of other stuff going on there that you can you can get into. If you really want to know what's happening with your athletes, you can you can get into all kinds of stuff. How they pedal the bike, for example, you know, things like that. How much. It just, it just goes in so much detail. I, I won't even touch on it here because it, it's, it, it's really beyond most people even, even wanting to talk about. Um, it's stuff, quite honestly, that I've had, there's a lot of stuff that I never use. It's interesting, I glance at it, but I know a lot of stuff I don't use at all. There's certain things there that I like to use that I watch to see what they're doing. And that's where I think it's valuable is the slimiter's again. That's holding your athlete back WKOs, you know, training teams will give you information about that, but WKO will take it to a deep, different level, a much deeper level of, inf- of data information about that limiter. So, so I'm not trying to sell WKO, but I, I would recommend Dynamics. most of our coaches.
0: Yeah, no, I I totally hear what you're saying, and I I very much uh, appreciate that uh, insight. I think that's pretty much my take uh, on it since I started looking at it uh, myself. Well, uh, Joe Friel, you uh, have helped athletes and coaches take it to the next level for gosh four decades now and certainly for the last 20 to 30 years through your training bible and uh, it's been a really fascinating conversation for my Patreon subscribers Joe and I uh, recorded a bonus segment which uh, has been on the Patreon feed for a little while so you can go back and take a listen to that Uh, for those of you who enjoyed this uh, uh, conversation and want to become a Patreon subscriber please do because you'll be able to get that bonus interview and uh, you can hear even more about what Joe thinks about online coaching, how to find a coach, and how to be sure it's a good match for you as an athlete. Joe Friel, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Jeff. joining yourself. And that's it for another episode. The TriDark Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Zankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesce. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, you can send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. You can also join the TriDoc Podcast Facebook group. That is a private group on Facebook. Please do so, and I will admit you after answering a couple of very easy questions, you can submit questions there and also participate in discussions with other listeners. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com or livesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridoc Podcast Facebook page, Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel, where you can often find videos of the different interviews that are on the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreoncom forward try.podcast to get access to all kinds of bonus content and at the $10 a month level, getting the try.podcast Podcast logo running. The music heard at the beginning, at the end of the show, at the beginning and the end of the show is "Radio" by MP Alex. It's used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and get small, independent bands of chance. The Talk Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multi-sports. Until then, remember 1121, train hard, train hard.